Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you watching online. So glad you are here. My name is Jan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series called Patient. And in case you wonder what that means, you've got this little card when you came in right here, and it explains what what it means to be a patient right there in that first statement. We've been looking at that statement every week in this series, and we're going to say this and see if you can fill in those blanks. If If you've been here, see if you can fill them in on your own but then we'll take a look at this together. All right, here we go. It says this, we are broken. Trusting that Christ alone can make us whole, we freely admit our own brokenness and place our lives in his hands. And so basically the idea is that there are no perfect people in this room right? No one's perfect. No one watching online is perfect. None of us are perfect. We all have imperfections. Well, flaws, you know this. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You're aware of this. You know there are times when we lose our temper, times when we cut corners, times when we get jealous, times when we care too much about what other people think about us. We have these imperfections, these flaws. We say stuff that we wish we hadn't said. I'm sure if you looked back at your life, you could see some choices that you made that you wish you had done differently. So it's not new. We, we know those things. And in the New Testament, Jesus refers to these imperfections, these flaws. He refers to them as a sickness. He talks about them as a sickness, and that's important because he's saying that these things, it's not just that we do the wrong thing, it's not just there's these actions, it's that there's something inside of us, a sickness, that causes us to act in that way. There's a spiritual, a moral sickness, a sickness of the soul that convinces us to prioritize ourselves over other people, to act in a manner that is actually unhealthy for us and for the people around us. And he says, Jesus says, that, that, that one of the main reasons he's come is to heal that sickness. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, the people who think they're perfect, but sinners. But, and sinners is Jesus' word for you and me. Okay, that's his word for people who are imperfect, which is all of us. That's how Jesus refers to to imperfect, broken people like us. And he says, I've come to make you whole. I've come to heal you of this. So we have two choices. One, we can choose to, to be sick and just continue being sick and allow our sickness to get worse and to run our lives. Or we can choose to accept Jesus's invitation and say, I'm ready to be a patient. Make me whole. I'm ready to enter the healing process with you, Jesus. And we're talking about this because it's really important for us as a church to remember that we are broken. That coming into this room didn't make us suddenly perfect. That that church is not a place where good people gather to come and talk about how good they are and how perfect their lives are. Or or, or to pretend that everything is great and that they're perfect. And church isn't a place to come and gather and feel bad and ashamed and embarrassed about how terrible we all, all, all are either. Church is a place. It's a community, actually. It's not even a place. It's a community of broken people who have chosen to trust Jesus with our brokenness and let him make us whole. We acknowledge our sickness, our moral, our our, our spiritual sickness, and we say, Jesus, it's yours. What can you do with this? So being a patient, it's not, not, oh, terrible, I'm sick, it's this. It's there's hope. It's I'm loved in the midst of my brokenness. There's someone who cares enough about me to want me to become whole. 
And we're going to talk today about a specific and important part of that healing process, a, a part that really requires us to trust the doctor, like Don was talking about last week. Um, a few years and one kid ago, my wife was experiencing some abdominal pain, and, and she wasn't pregnant, but uh, she just started to feel some, some, it was mild, it wasn't that bad, it was just a little bit, and she, and she said, oh, well, let's just see if it gets better, and by about day three or four, she said, I'm going to set up a doctor's appointment, it's okay, so she went to the doctor, and I get a call from her while she's at the doctor, and she says, hey, everything's fine, the doctor says everything looks good, they just want to do one scan just to make sure. Okay, everything's probably fine, but they just want to rule something out. So they're just going to do this one scan. So I got to go get this scan done. And that means that you have to go pick up the kids. So great. So I go to school. I pick up the kids. My wife goes to get this scan done. I get the kids home. And then I get another call from my wife. And she says, I got the scan done. My appendix has ruptured and I need to have emergency surgery. And I've got four ki five kids, five kids at home. And, and I, now I've got to, you know, I just want to go be with my wife, but I've got five kids. I've got to figure out, they've got to get food. They've got to have overnight bags. I've got to find someone to take care of them. So I'm calling everyone, and we've got great people at the church we were at, and they're saying, yeah, I'll help you, and I'm getting all this, and I'm trying to get them ready, and they're just all over, blah, <laughs> and I'm trying to explain to them without freaking them out and telling them that their mom might die. I'm trying to say, I need you to, will you just sit down and focus? Finally, they get all packed and, and I get them picked up and dropped off and everything else and I get to go be, by, be with my wife and thankfully I don't get pulled over on the way there because all I want to do is be next to my wife. So I get there and I sit with her and we're getting ready and then they, they take her in to surgery and they take her in to get her anesthesia and everything else and I'm sitting and now my job is to wait. Isn't that fun? And then the surgical nurse comes out and he says, okay, here's the deal. We're going to take your wife's appendix out. We're going to use lasers. We're going to do these little, you know, the tiny incisions, pull it out, piece of cake. It'll be fine. And then he gives this caveat, unless there's complications. So I say, okay, sure, fine, great. So I sit down and I wait and I wait and I wait. And I start thinking it shouldn't be taking this long. And the nurse, the surgical nurse comes back out and he says, okay, so there's complications, Here's the deal. Your wife's appendix has exploded. And now there's gangrene inside of her body infecting her other organs. So here's what we need to do. We need to slice your wife open down the middle, pull it apart, and pull her internal organs outside of her body, wash them off, and then put them back in. Is that okay with you? And of course, do it, I mean, whatever, right? You gotta get this done. So, so that's what they do. They go in, they cut her open, they take her organs out, they clean all the gangrene off, they put her back in. They, 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 they actually don't sew her up. They put her this thing called a wound back, which is a vacuum. Anyway, that's a whole other story. And, and she gets better. And just three weeks of recovery or more. And it's this big whole ordeal. But you know, at no point in that whole process did we ever say, just leave her appendix in there. Just, just leave it. Because we know that part of the healing process is removing what's making you sick. That part, of, part of healing, part of healing means taking out or removing the thing that's actually leading you towards death, the thing that's actually hurting you and harming you. And so the same is true for us spiritually, that there are things inside of us 
that need to be removed if we want to experience the wholeness that Jesus offers us. So we're gonna look at what that process looks like today in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses eight and nine. But before I go into that, let me pray for us if I can. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. First off, Lord, thank you that my wife's still alive. Thank you that you healed her and you protected her and that I have had the great privilege and honor of being married to such an awesome woman for so many years. And Lord, I pray that you um, use this time and, and we come to you, God, and we say, would you speak to our hearts? We know that you're here and so we ask, would you speak? Would you, would you work your healing process in us in me, in this time. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, verse we're looking at that's in the, uh, a book called First John in the Bible. And First John is a letter that was written by a guy named John who was one of the disciples of Jesus. And he's writing to a group of house churches. And he wants them to understand that God's love is so big, so lavish, so extensive, so deep, so high, so wide that, that it should transform our lives and, and that he acknowledges that that transformation, that healing from brokenness to wholeness, it takes time. And he tells us something about that process, beginning in verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the first thing to notice there is the word we. That John isn't saying you, you have sin, you need to confess. He's saying we, he includes himself. He says, yeah, I, I walked with Jesus. I, I knew him personally, but guess what? I have this too. He says, we have this issue. And he tells us that the process of dealing with our brokenness is something called confession. And he tells us what happens when we don't confess. And then he tells us what happens when we do confess. But before we get into that, I want to I just talk about what confession actually is. The Bible, we have to remember, was written for us, not to us. It was written in different languages and in different contexts. And sometimes we have to dig into that to understand what it's really getting at. So the word confession, it's two Greek words. One is the word to agree to agree with. The other is the word to say, to speak, to say out loud. And so to confess is to agree out loud, to speak, to agree. Agree with what? Well, it says confess our sins. Okay, so it's agreeing with, agreeing about our sins. And that word sin, it's got a lot of baggage in our society. Essentially, the Greek word hamartia means to miss the mark. It's the idea that there's a target and, and we miss that target. And so that altogether, the whole idea of confession is this idea that, that God, who designed us, who made us, who loves us, who's trustworthy, has a standard, has a target for how we are supposed to love each other and, how, and, and what our identity is. And so confession then, it's not, it's not just the admission that I've done something that's been arbitrarily dubbed wrong. It's the declaration that there is a God that he is trustworthy, and that somewhere along the way, I chose to reject his love, his loving leadership, in favor of my own agenda, and I decided to go my own way. And now I come to God, and I acknowledge my rebellion, I acknowledge my self-rule, and I say, God, I know this was wrong. I know I shouldn't have done this. Would you please remove this from my life? To put it more simply, confession is agreeing with God about the things that need to be removed from our lives. 
and that's written down on your card there if you want to write it in. Confession is agreeing with God about the things that need to be removed from our lives, the the ruptured appendixes, the things that are making us sick, that are infecting other people, the things that need to be taken out so we can get whole. See, confession is spiritual surgery. It's the process by which God removes those things that are keeping us from health. And for many of us, this is a foreign concept. We're, we're not really familiar with this concept of confession. Everything I just said is foreign for us. The concept we're familiar with is the apology, right? We all know what an apology is, right? An, an apology, that's when we go to someone and we express regret for the impact of our actions. I'm sorry that what I said hurt you, right? That's, that, that's, that's one of an apology. And there's some similarities, but a confession is very different. A confession is admitting that what we did was actually wrong. Not just the impact of it, but, but that what we did, that we are responsible for it. It's saying, hey, I take responsibility for this. It was wrong. I recognize the impact it has, but more importantly, I recognize there's something inside of me that caused me to do it. And that thing that's inside of me that caused me to do it, I'm confessing that. And I want that to come out. I, mean, I want that removed from our lives. See, an apology doesn't remove anything from our lives. If anything, we use an apology as an excuse to keep things in our lives because we're focusing on the impact of our actions rather than the motivation behind them. As far as I can tell, and I might be wrong, and if I'm wrong, you can come up to church after service and just slap me in the face. But as far as I can tell, Scripture never calls us to apologize. I don't know of a place in Scripture where it says, go to someone and say, I'm sorry. There's times where it says to be reconciled to someone, times where it says to be at peace with someone. But when it's talking about sin, what the scripture says over and over again is to confess. It talks about the power of confession. There's this story in the Old Testament of King David, who's the king of Israel, does all these amazing things, but he ends up sleeping with some guy's wife and then he has the guy killed so he can marry her. And, and when he's finally confronted by, all, by someone about all the things he's done wrong, he doesn't say, I'm sorry that my actions hurt you. That's not what he says. What he says is, I have sinned. I have missed the mark. I have sinned against the Lord. I have rejected his leadership. And he he says it out loud. You know, it's not hard to get my kids to apologize. It's not hard. I mean, it is hard for Silas because he's only two and he can't really talk yet. But for the other ones, it's not that hard to get to apologize. What it's hard to do, it's hard to get them to really take responsibility to really see that what they did was not justified by the action of anyone else, that that what they did was wrong and that it was caused by something deep inside of them that told them to prioritize themselves over other people. And that if they don't deal with that thing, then it's it's gonna imprison them for the rest of their lives. They'll continue to repeat that thing over and over again. John tells us a little bit about that in verse eight when he talks about what happens if we don't confess. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we don't confess, we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now when he says, if we claim to be without sin, I don't think that means if we walk around going, I am perfect, worship me. I don't do anything wrong. I uphold all of God's standards. Have you ever met anyone who does that? I don't think people do that. No, why? Because we're smart. We know that if we do that, people won't like us. 
We know that that's arrogant and prideful. So we don't say those things at all. We say other things instead. We say things like, I'm not perfect. We, we, we admit, we say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not perfect. But you know what the next word after I'm not perfect almost always is? But. I'm not perfect, but. I'm not perfect, but. But here's the, and so what we're doing is we're, we're sort of acknowledging our brokenness, but not to the point to where we actually have to change. Not to the point where we actually have to remove those things. I think a better way to read this is not if I walk around saying I'm perfect, but if we have a habit of minimizing or denying our own brokenness. If we have a habit of saying, yeah, I did some things wrong, but they did it way worse, and it was because of them that I did this. If we are always the good guy in our own head, if we are always the victim who was mistreated, if we are always the one who is just misunderstood, if we are always the one who has all of the right answers, if only other people would take my suggestion, if we are the one who always makes the right decisions by ignoring other people's inputs, if, if the overarching trajectory of my relationships is one where I see other people as more at fault than me, then even though we aren't walking around saying I'm perfect, we're still denying our own sin. You know, we don't, we don't say I'm perfect, but there is something we say that I think, I think it's our 21st century American version of I don't sin. You know what it is? It's the phrase, I'm a good person. That's our version of that. We know we're not supposed to say I'm perfect. So what we say is we say, I'm a good person. Sure, there's some things here. Maybe I'm lazy here. Maybe I speak unkindly there. Maybe I do this thing. But overall, I'm really a good person. Overall, I really don't need to change. Overall, I'm good enough as I am. If we claim that we are a good person, we deceive ourselves. Notice it says who we deceive we're not deceiving God. And we're not really deceiving the people who know us best either. We're, we're deceiving ourselves. We're creating an image of ourselves to ourselves that says, hey, guess what, self? You're good. You, you, don't, you don't need uh, to change. And that's dangerous. Because when we're convinced we don't need to be changed, guess what? We go back to just being sick. We stop being impatient and we go back to just being sick and, and, and someone who is sick and in denial because denying or minimizing our own brokenness keeps us from becoming whole. Denying or minimizing our own brokenness. If I said to Lindsay, your appendix isn't really ruptured, she would be dead. Denying or minimizing our own brokenness, it keeps us from becoming whole. At the same time, it is the most natural human, I mean, my goodness, being a parent of six kids has taught me that the most natural thing to do when someone says you did something wrong is to say, no, I didn't. Isn't it? I mean, isn't, isn't it like the first, the first response, knee-jerk response of somebody saying you did, you get, you're driving down the freeway, you get pulled over by the policeman, you know you were going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, not that anyone here would do that, and the cop says, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, I have no idea. Or, yeah, I'm going to be going five over. It's human reflex to deny our sins. But when we do that, we end up getting sicker. And we, often we get away with it. When I was a kid, I started stealing. I started stealing when I was in fourth grade at a bake sale. 
And I realized as I was running this bake sale that I could take this $5 bill and just stick it in my pocket and no one would know and it would be awesome. And so I did that. And so I kept doing it and kept stealing. And one time I was out with my, with my mom and we were uh, at a shop and I saw a little button that I thought was really cool and that I wanted. So I took it and I stole the button. I put it in my pocket and we were, we, we left the store. We started walking back to the car and in my immaturity, I, I just started, I took it out and started putting it on, not thinking that my mom might see, which she did. My mom saw it and my mom said, Hey, where did you get that button? And I said, well, I just bought it at the store we were just at. And she said, no, you didn't. I was there with you the whole time. I never saw you buy that. And I said, yes, I did. You were just over there in that section looking at stuff. And while you were doing that, I just reached over, grabbed the button. It was only a dollar, so it was really quick. Just put it on the counter and it was done really fast. And she said, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. And I said, yes, I did. And she said, no, you didn't. And now we're gonna go back to the store and I'm gonna ask the shopkeeper what you did. I'm gonna ask her if you actually bought it. And do you know what I said? Okay, let's go. Because I wasn't going to admit it. I, I was not ready. I was too scared. There's no way I was going to admit it. So we start walking back to the store and we get about halfway there. And my mom says, okay, I believe you. But guess what that meant? Guess what I kept doing? Stealing. And I kept stealing. And I kept stealing until I was a senior in high school. And I finally got caught. And the police got involved. And now I had to confess there was no more hiding it. See, when we don't confess, we don't get better, we get worse. And we prevent the healing process that needs to happen. You know what, I, I didn't confess, I didn't confess because I was scared. I was scared of what my mom would say. I was embarrassed, I was scared of what the shopkeeper would say. I was scared of what it would say about me. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gotten to the point where you're like, okay, I just need to come clean about this, y'all. This is just too hard. I just need to be honest about this. And then you start thinking about what might happen. You start thinking about what people might think and all of a sudden, it's like, no, I, I don't wanna go there. Well, let's take a look. It might help for us take a look at what happens when we do confess. Picking up in verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And that word faithful literally means worthy of trust. And John is saying he is trustworthy. He can be trusted with our brokenness. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now the word just is, a, is the root word is a Greek word decay. And it, it literally means legally just. That, that I behave in a manner that conforms to the legal laws and to the rules. Okay, and so what John is saying is because, because God adheres to laws, he will forgive you. Now that's an odd statement. We don't typically associate forgiveness with upholding justice. We associate forgiveness with, with mercy and, 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 and we expect this to say he is merciful and so he will forgive us. And we think essentially that forgiveness is really the opposite of justice, that if, I, if God was being just and adhering to laws, I would get punishment, but his forgiveness sort of allows me not to experience that. So what's going on here? Well, something really significant, I think, that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our sin has already been punished. 
right? So in, in 1 John 4.10, John, the same John, in the same letter, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That term atoning sacrifice means he's already paid the price. He's already been punished for our sins. So it would be unjust of God to punish us for what he has already punished Jesus for. So, so we have this guarantee of God's forgiveness, not because he's just feeling nice that day, not because he wants to minimize our sin and say, oh, that's no big deal, but because his justice binds him to forgiveness because he can't punish the same sin twice. It's comforting and reassuring to us to know that God's forgiveness is a guarantee. We have God's forgiveness before we confess and that is bonkers. I mean, who does that? Who says, no matter what you tell me, I forgive you? Imagine, has anybody in your life ever said, you know, no, you know what, I, I, ahead of time, before you confess, before you tell me anything wrong, you are absolutely forgiven. They don't do that. But God does. So we don't have to sit there like we're outside the principal's offering if wonders if we're gonna get expelled. Wondering if our relationship with him is ruined, we know ahead of time that there is forgiveness. We can confess with confidence that we are accepted instead of rejected. There's a story Jesus tells of, the, of a, a, a son, a prodigal son, who, who goes off and does a bunch of terrible things and wastes his dad's money and does all these horrible things. And he comes back to his dad and has to confess. And his father hugs him before he even finishes confessing and says, come, we're going to have a party because you're back. When we confess, this is what God does. He hugs us. He says, I'm so thankful that you were honest with me. Come back. Now I'm so excited because we can really move forward together. See, we think that, that experiencing God's love is about reading it in the Bible or convincing ourselves of it or, 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 or obeying him. And all of those things are good and important. But if we really want to experience God's unconditional love, we should practice the art of confession. I have this rule in my family with my kids. I started when my oldest, Abby, was really young. And I'm not saying it's the right rule. It's just the one that I've adopted where I've, I've this promise to my kids. I say, I will never punish you for telling me the truth. I will never. And that's a crazy thing to say. And there are people who would say, you should never say that to your kids because I'm giving up the right to give them consequences. And I, and I am, I'm saying, I'm not gonna give you consequences. I will not punish you for telling me the truth. But I've decided that providing a safe space for them is more important. That if I can make a space where they can come and they can truly say, I know this was wrong and I own it and I don't want it to be a part of my life, then I don't need to worry about convincing them that's wrong. All I need to do is convince them that I love them. And I, I want them to know that, that it's a safe place where they can be honest so that we can all be made whole together. Just ask you a question. Have you ever, ever in your life, been 100% accepted for who you truly are? Not who you pretend to be, not who you are on your best days, not who people who read your Facebook page think you are, but for who you really are. Have you ever stood morally buck naked before God? And before another person, owning all of your stuff, all of your lies, all of your insecurities, everything else. 
and knowing that they, that, 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 that they would be completely justified in saying, I never want to see you again, and they would be completely justified in that, and you stand before them with your life in their hands, and they look at you, and they say, I forgive you. I love you. Thank you for confessing. Let's pray together and, and work through this together. I've had those experiences in my life and they will absolutely change you forever. That's what it was when I came to Christ for the first time after atheism and everything else and I, and I had to just come clean about all my brokenness. I've had times like that with my wife where I've stood before her and, 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 and just confessed and said, I, you, you have every right to be angry with me. I've done it with my kids where I've said, I made a mistake. This was wrong. I did the wrong thing. There's something inside of me that caused me to do the wrong thing. Would you pray for me and help, help me to, to confess that and get that out? This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is the essence of his unconditional love that we can stand before him in the reality of who we are and know that we know that we know that we are his. Forgiveness, it proves that we are not defined by our brokenness, but by God's unconditional love. And we only get there through, for, through confession. But it's not just that God forgives us, because check out the next part of the verse. In verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now that word unrighteousness is actually the exact opposite word from the word that is used for God being just that we talked about earlier that's rooted in the word DK. It's literally the exact same word, but with the prefix for not in front of it. Okay, that we do not conform to what is right, that we rebel instead, okay? That there's this refusal of God's leadership, that we're purified of that. So it's saying that when we say, God, I agree with you that this needs to be removed from my life, then the rebellion in our hearts is gone. And, and we recommit ourselves to trusting God's loving leadership. And now by God's grace, we actually have the ability to make different choices in our life. And this is crucial because our unrighteousness that sits there when we deny it, it doesn't just affect us, it affects other people as well. It, it leaks and it, it gets over others as well. And uh, one day I was um, driving down the road and uh, there was a pickup truck in front of me and it was about a block or so ahead of me. And it went through a, 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 the traffic light, which was a green light, went through the light, hit a bump and something popped out of its truck and it landed all over the road. And uh, I, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, I can, I can do a couple things. I can, I can just drive right on over whatever it was that fell out or I can go around it or I can do whatever. And instead I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna stop and just help this guy, whatever it is. And, and so I, so I pulled over and I go to help pick it up. And do you know what it is that fell on the road? Nails. Nails, a whole bunch of nails just fell out all over the road. I was really glad I stopped. And I helped him pick them all up and he put them back in his truck. And now he has a decision to make. He can say, that was just a freak accident. That's not really my fault. It's just a freak accident. I'm gonna put them back in the bed of my truck. Or he can say, you know what? I made a bad choice. 
And that's my responsibility. I'm not gonna do that again. I'm confessing that is wrong. I'm gonna put this somewhere else that's more secure. See, when we confess, we're taking the nails out of the back of our truck. So we don't puncture everybody else's tires around us. That's what it means when we're purified from that unrighteous. That confession, confession doesn't only free us to experience God's grace. It frees us to share God's grace. It allows us to express it to others, people. See, the key to overcoming our own sin and brokenness and sickness is not human willpower. It's humility. We, we need to give up on trying to force ourselves to do things differently and allow Jesus to change us at the heart level. There's something wrong in my heart that wants to put me ahead of you, Jesus, and I confess that as wrong. And that, that process, it's confession. Confession is spiritual surgery. It's the process by which God removes the things that are making us sick and moves us towards health. So what does that look like? For us, well, you got your prescription cards. Wave these at me. First thing I want you to do is circle the teaching verse. It says First John one nine right there. Just circle that. Just want to encourage you to read that this week. Read it. Read it every day. Write it down on a postcard. Write it down on your mirror. Write it down and just remember that verse. It's a tremendous promise. And then I want to encourage you to practice confession this week. Confession, whether it's to God or actually, I really want to encourage you to have it be confession to another person. And there's just three simple steps. You got two, three, and four on there. Three simple steps I'm going to walk you through. The first one is just see it. Just see your own brokenness. Not everybody else's. Now come here, just look for a second at your own issues, whatever they are. Stare at them. Acknowledge them. Really see them for what they are. And then share them. Share it. Not only with God, but go to someone and say, hey, God's been putting this on my heart. I recognize there's this thing in me that needs to come out and here's what it is. Find someone who's safe. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's someone, one of our pastors here on staff who are really good at listening. Confess and then leave it. See it, share it, and then leave it. Once you confess it, once, once you, once you have, have, have said this, you own it, you know that you've been forgiven, leave it behind. It doesn't define you anymore. And if it helps you to write it down and burn it in a fire, great, go ahead and do that. But leave it behind. So let's be people this week who confess and move towards wholeness. We're gonna have some people, the band's gonna play a song, we're gonna have some folks down here that are our prayer team. They would love to pray with you. If you've got something you wanna confess, you wanna pray about confession, they would love to pray with you. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this time. Thanks for these people. Thanks for your word that assures us we have forgiveness. That we have that guarantee because you are just, because you are trustworthy, you will forgive. And may that forgiveness radically transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.